All right. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. For those of you joining us for the first time, I'm Kyle Vitale, HXA's Director of Programs, and I'm pleased to introduce tonight's live recording of the podcast Blocked and Reported. To introduce your hosts for the evening, journalists Katie Herzog and Jesse Singles scour the internet for its craziest, silliest, most sociopathic content. <laughs> Part of an obsessive and ill-conceived, their words, attempt to extract kernels of meaning and humanity from a landscape of endless raging dumpster fires. And sometimes they talk about other stuff, too. Jesse is also author of the book, The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills, along with the newsletter, Single-Minded. He is, as he writes, cool. <laughs> Katie, meanwhile, describes herself as the only host of the only podcast. <laughs> Jesse and Katie, it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thank you guys all for, can you hear me? Okay. Thank you guys all for coming here today, uh, for being here at the Heterodox Academy Conference and the first ever Blocks and Reported live show. We've gotten to talk to a bunch of different people today, seen some friendly faces. Our assistant is here somewhere. He's a furry, so there he is. So if you see the guy with the foxtail hanging out of his pants, that's Trace. If you see someone with a foxtail, say hi. I would say give him a little pat on the rump. You have, you have our consent to do so. I think it's, that's in like the heterodox way, right? Yeah. We're cool with it. We have no HR department at our podcast. Uh, yeah, we're happy to be here. It's great to see the full spectrum of the American political system from center left to center right. Wait, Jesse, weren't you the only Brooklyn podcaster at the January 6th riot? Yeah, was, yeah exactly. <laughs> Dude, we got to stop the steal. Come on, I man. I saw you with some Viking, Viking horns. Exactly. Um, most importantly, I get to see you for only the third or fourth time ever in person. Uh, I don't like the shape of your head. Jesse, I told you to leave your calipers for the Quillette conference. Ooh, awkward. We kid, we kid. So we actually met in person for the first time at the first uh, Heterodox Academy conference in New York a couple years ago. And I will never forget, on the last day of the conference, I was talking to Jesse about an article that he had coming out in The Atlantic the very next day. This was an article on trans kids. This article is now infamous. It sparked a thousand culture wars. And I asked him, you know, are you nervous about the backlash? And when he said no, I realized that this man might just be dumb enough to host a podcast with me. <laughs> So we can thank the Heterodox Academy for bringing us together. Yeah, we want to thank Heterodox Academy for a lot of just poor judgment in general <laughs> that brought us here. So I'm assuming that there's some people in the audience who've never heard our show. So Jesse, for the newbies, how would you describe Blocked and Reported? I wasn't sure how to answer this. We were eating, I'm going to name drop, in a name drop in a nerdy way that would only work at this conference. Uh, we were eating dinner with a little guy called Matt Iglesias. Little? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The LeBron James of <laughs> neoliberalism. I'm so sad. <laughs> the fuck? Uh, I, I was like, I don't know how to answer this question in a funny way. What do you think? Iglesias said, this show, listen to your show, is like, quote, living inside Twitter. Don't clap. <laughs> that makes me feel like every time we record, we're committing a war crime. We're bringing people inside Twitter. That's horrible. We also do a little bit of media criticism and talk about what's going on in universities, things like that. 
that is our, uh, that's our podcast. Um, we also have a very stupid gimmick, gimmick we do at the start of every episode. Every time. Should we do it? I guess. Katie, what is the name of this increasingly live action podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. Um, so, like we said, this is our first time doing a live show, and it took us a while to get here. We've been trying to do it for a year and a half. We started talking about it a year and a half ago. I had, I was skeptical. I had three criteria. I didn't want to do it unless we did it right. My criteria were the venue had to have piercing, blinding <laughs> lights that would, make, that would make everyone look ugly. Second was I didn't want to do it at, like, a bar or a club. It had to be some sort of, like, public policy or academic conference. And the third criteria was everyone had to be, in the audience, had to be stone cold sober. <laughs> so I want to thank Heterodox Academy for making all three of those things yeah, happen. check on all three counts. So if you like what you hear today, you can check us out at blockedandreported.org. And if you don't want, like what you hear, just register your complaints with Jesse after the show. So today we've got Eric Smith from York University in Free Black Thought joining us shortly. And we're also going to do a Q&A at the very end. But first... Let's talk about uh, campus controversies. Let's do it. I was trying to, we were trying to figure out like the best way to marry, not in a weird way, but we wanted our podcast to get married to this conference. <laughs> not legally, not sexually, but a common law of marriage. Sure. We wanted to shack up. And we were trying to figure out what like the area of intersection was. And I, you know, it's weird stuff going on on uh, college campuses. And... You and I have both covered our fair share of these, and we thought we'd just start by talking a little bit about some of the most memorable campus controversies we covered. Um, I'm wondering, would you guys like us to first talk about a couple of our own most embarrassing college incidents? There's probably no appetite for that, right? <laughs> so I love how giving, like, we've never done a live event. You can manipulate the crowd so easily. It's so, like, condescending and patronizing. Does anyone here like heterodoxy? <laughs> yeah. So I knew that Jesse was going to bring this up. Um, I, I blissfully, I, I, I blacked out most of college, but one of my professors happened to write a memoir, so I brought, a, I brought a prop. This was my freshman year creative writing instructor. Her name's Lori Horvitz. I was a freshman, uh, started in September of 2001. Old. Let me just read you a little passage here. Katie, a freckle-faced tomboy, arrived late on a regular basis, and after plopping herself down, she'd flip through a newspaper or read a book. When asked to participate in discussions, she'd sigh, reluctantly close her newspaper or book, and stare straight ahead. By the second week of the semester, I dreaded walking into the room. Jesse is familiar with this from mm -hmm. using the podcast. The day the Twin Towers crumbled to the ground, Katie slumped in her desk. She said, we deserved it. <laughs> Thank God there was no Twitter in 2001. When I first heard that passage, I thought that he was going to say, the day the Twin Towers fell, something even worse happened. I had to teach Katie Herzog. Equal, equal. For me, th this is probably hard for people to believe, but I actually wasn't like a smooth operator in college. You? I wasn't, you? I wasn't, you? I know, you, you look at me now, I'm like, I don't know what I'm like. But um, in college, I was like a little bit awkward. I hadn't grown into my limbs yet, so I was like one of those, um, outside a used car dealership, those floppy boys, where like the wind blows them around. And you were purple. And I was, I was bright purple. I had a skin condition from too much World of Warcraft. Uh, one time at a party, which I think someone in the audience may have been at this party. I won't embarrass. I think you were. Anyway. Uh, so I was at a party, and I was just drinking, trying to summon up the cover 
courage to like talk to anyone or do anything. But I did see a familiar face. And when I saw the familiar face walk in the room, I violently pointed at him. I was like, dude. As I pointed, a short girl walked between me and them. And I got her right in the eye. <laughs> and this like, it should have merited some reflection about just me and my life, but instead I literally just turned around and pretended I hadn't just poked someone in the eye. And then I avoided her for the next two and a half years, and it worked out. Jesse, known abuser of women. <laughs> um, you can almost define what one is. <laughs> that was cathartic to talk a little bit about our college years. Um, why don't we just get a little bit into some of the more memorable college controversies uh, we've covered. So one of yours was uh, local for you, right? Yeah, so I live in Seattle in the local university there, University of Washington. Um, there's a professor there named Stuart Regis, and in 2018, do you guys remember the James Damore memo? James Damore was a Google engineer, and he wrote this internal memo basically saying that the reason there are more women in technical positions, uh, coders, isn't because of systemic oppression or sexism, it's because of interest. And so Stuart wrote a piece for Quillette basically discussing this, this argument and talking about his own experiences as a computer science professor. This, as you can imagine, did not go over well in Seattle. The department first issued a statement about it, and then many people both inside and outside of the university called for his firing. Eventually, he was actually demoted and placed on probation. Um, the university says this wasn't because of his article, but yeah, okay. Um, so I filed a public records request to find out what exactly the administration, uh, his bosses and colleagues were saying about him. Pro tip for the, for the academics here, if you're gonna shit talk somebody, pick up the phone. Do not use your campus email. So I got an email back from the public records office. I found a bunch of different requests. And uh, one of them, they gave me a date that I could expect the records by. Uh, that date was July 27th, 2034. My, my reaction when I heard that was like, given Katie's lifestyle, she's definitely gonna be dead by then. Yeah. I should mention, so Stuart did not stop taking controversial positions at UW, he, despite the fact that he's not tenured. Uh, earlier this year, he was instructed, along with his colleagues, to add, add a land acknowledgement to a syllabus. So he Wait, we forgot our land acknowledgement. Oh, shit. <laughs> Anybody know the local tribes? Um, so he, he wrote his own, and uh, let's just say that he did not thank the, the Coast Salish people. Um, this also did not go over well. His, uh, the administration instructed the tech people to go in and manually remove the land acknowledgement from his syllabus. He also was, he's currently being investigated by the university. This could actually lead to his firing. He's being represented by fire. We don't know what's gonna happen yet. He's actually in the audience. Stuart, you wanna stand up? Where is he? There he is. Okay. So if you need someone to help you write a land acknowledgement, do not ask that man. Yeah, I have a, I have a couple that sort of seem heterodox relevant. One was in 2018, a graduate student, um, involved a graduate student at uh, City University of New York. There was a listing sent out on, I think, the Earth Sciences listserv advertising a Fulbright scholarship in Israel. And this kid decides it'd be a good idea to write back to the whole listserv that this uh, listing was sick Zionist propaganda, which is a bit over the top, I think. A bit. You're familiar with Zionist propaganda, working with me, but sure. it's a bit much. Um, and of course, because it's 2018, it wasn't just like, dude, chill out, don't post stuff like that to the listserv it got to the Title IX and diversity coordinator because kids said that they were traumatized by it, they were triggered by it, the Holocaust was brought up, because of course it was. 
So this kid found himself uh, brought before an administrator facing an investigation where he was, I love people throw around the term Kafkaesque, but this is Kafkaesque. He was asked to defend himself when he said, what are you accusing me of? They were like, we can't tell you that. And it was really only because this group, Palestine Legal, that does really good work on campus free speech for pro-Palestinian activists that um, after a three-month investigation, they dropped the case. And it just, it, that story sort of taught me how much, like, it doesn't really matter if you don't end up getting in trouble. Just the investigation has such an obvious chilling effect and it can be so scary. And there's an even worse example of that, and I think it was uh, 2020, a woman named Elisa Perrette, who was a community college English professor in Washington State, she had just gotten tenure. She and some other, this was during the reckoning. We all remember the reckoning. That's why. Reckon? <laughs> I reckon, I remember. That's why our podcast exists. Um, they were doing a lot of uh, white fragility trainings. I bet most people here know what that is, but how would you describe a white fragility training? Just look in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> a, a white fragility training, I would say it is like um, white people mostly telling other white people that they're racist, and if yep. they push back on it, that's double, triple proof that they're racist. It's very cultish, because it's like the whole uh, model is if you deny being racist, that's proof you're racist. Obviously. It's like if the witch floats, she's a witch if she drowns. She's a racist. She's a racist. <laughs> there you go. Um, so she was trying to figure out what to do. She had like some real, you know, the sorts of liberal arguments against these trainings anyone in this room can imagine. And during a Zoom training, a very weird white fragility Zoom training, she sort of took the mic and gave like a three-minute pretty milk toast. Uh, statement against him. It was sort of a, a nonviolent Zoom protest. And I listened to it. I listened to audio of it. It was like, it was a David Brooks column. It was like really mild. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't mean that. I'm not insulting David Brooks. It just, you don't read David Brooks to get like fired up. It was just like, here's why he do. Well, that's your fetish, which I thought we weren't going to bring on stage. We're not supposed to talk about that. So I have a direct quote here. Basically, her briefly interrupting this white fragility training led to a nine-month shitstorm that cost the university at least a quarter of a million dollars investigating her. And it was that same thing where they couldn't figure out exactly what rule she broke. They just knew there was something in there somewhere. And um, the highlight for me, she had this one uh, antagonist in her own administration who was clearly like the leader of all this in trying to get her in trouble. And this administrator fi filed a complaint where she said, during the event, the impact of the respondent's conduct on the complainant personally was that it was truly an out-of-body experience. Their ears were ringing, and they were sweating, and their heart was racing. That sounds like white fragility. <laughs> when I read that again, I was like, it's like, is this uh, someone complained about white fragility uh, training, or did you take too much ecstasy? It's like the exact same <laughs> symptoms. Um, so yeah, that was a, I think, nine-month investigation, and she was eventually cleared, but like her reputation was ruined. The fact that she was tenured didn't matter. Uh, and I think covering these stories have made us both a little bit more sensitive to like, let's just say we're skeptical of the argument. Like, well, they didn't get in trouble at the end of the day. Who cares? Why are you focusing on this? An investigation itself can still be trouble. Okay, so I just want to put you on the spot a little bit here with some like general questions about this stuff. Um, what do you think about like the role journalists should play in highlighting the conduct of individual students who are, for lack of a better word, crazy? This is a good question. Thank you. Which is why I wrote it. No, you did it. She didn't write it. 
I think that in general, it depends on the context, right? So in general, I think it is probably better to focus on administrators and to even put pressure on administrators because students are going to be crazy. Students, that's what they do. Maybe it's the hormones, maybe it's the keg stands. They're kind of crazy. Yeah, well, not only that, but like I, I, people, I, we obviously think stuff is getting weird. That's why we have the podcast, but people like look back at history a little bit, like student activists in the 60s, like armed students taking over administrative buildings. Like it has been much worse than this in the past. Except at Evergreen. Except at Evergreen, right. Um, I, th I think there, so it depends on the case, case by case basis, right? So I don't think that it is good journalism to find some student who has put up a bad tweet, who has tweeted something stupid, like for instance, 9-11, we deserved it. And write an article about that, right? There's no, there's no value in that. But for instance, at, uh, during the height of Me Too, some students at the University of Washington, they were anonymous, they started an anonymous rape list. This was on, it was online, it could be accessed by anybody, anybody could add anybody to it. I thought this was a bad idea. So, Very controversial. So in that, in that case, I thought, yes, this is totally fair game. Yeah, I, whenever I think about this, um, do people remember Milo Yiannopoulos? Unfortunately. <laughs> he was like this sort of right-wing or far-right provocateur, and his whole shtick is he would like, his, well, okay, so his thing was like, I'm gay, but I'm also offensive. That's my thing, Jeff. Which, first of all, is your thing. <laughs> Second of all, is not an original thing. Like, who is shocked by this? <laughs> um, so he would like go to universities, and he'd get on stage and be like, oh, feminists are ugly. That's a very gay little homophobic little warble. You I apologize. <laughs> I, I slip into gay very, very naturally. Um, no, and what would always, and, and this, he had this whole, like, darkly brilliant system with Breitbart. He gets up on stage, says feminists are ugly. Inevitably, some student who's, like, unwell starts screaming and crying and vomiting and, like, bleeding out of her eyes. And her someone, eyes, Jesse? Their eyes. And, <laughs> and someone gets film of it, and then this, like, poor college student who was like 19 and I don't know I don't I think there's a way to cover these controversies without making someone like that the subject of it and like an object of that much ridicule because I think about how dumb I was when I was 19 like I poked a girl in the eye that, that's assault it's accidental <laughs> you're but. still dumb Jesse <laughs> um, along those same lines I think one of the critiques we get most often is that our work like gives the right ammunition I've heard that one. Yeah. So, like, if you're if you're skeptical of Me Too or of certain aspects of social justice, you sometimes end up agreeing on a narrow thing with Miley Yiannopoulos. God forbid. Like, what 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 is the right approach to that? What should we care? No. <laughs> I mean, this, this is difficult, and I've seen it more with with covering gender issues and and Me Too than campus issues in particular. It is the reality that if you cover something even though Justin and I are both on the left, as much as people want to say that we're not, if you cover something from a, if you're critical, basically, of the left, people on the right are going to co-opt that. Yeah. Yeah, Ted Cruz is going to take your story and... He's obsessed with us. He is obsessed with us. He's a, he's a primo. Enough phone calls, Ted. <laughs> primo. This is just the reality of what's going to happen. And there are ways to sort of try to mitigate that. You can clear your throat and hedge within your piece and write 15 paragraphs about how this is going to happen as soon as you publish that piece. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. I think it would be a dereliction of our duty as journalists to not cover stories that we think are important just because it is possible, even likely, that these are going to become political fodder. But maybe I'm just telling, trying to convince myself that it's okay. What about the claim that, like, why do you spend so much focus on this when there's, like, someone starving somewhere or something? 
I like bullshit. We do like bullshit. That's why we're here. Yeah. Well, along those same lines, um, there, my whole thing is like, I feel like oftentimes journalists act like activists and that that's bad. And I think like there's a important brand differentiation thing where if we act like activists, what are we for? Why don't we just become activists? And, and I do think some of the like Title IX and Me Too stuff that's happened on campus uh, provide good examples of this. And there was a story you wrote about a guy named Florian Yeager that I think was like just crazy on that front. Yeah, so this was a professor in the neuroscience department at Rochester University, and his, his story started in 2016. There were some vague Me Too complaints against him, and in the end, this was a multi-year process. It's actually still going on. There were four different investigations. This cost the university maybe tens of millions, I mean, an astronomical amount of money. And I went into this, this story thinking that Florian was guilty because everything that I, that I read about him, and I read a lot, this was covered locally and nationally, made it seem like he was guilty. Also that name, Florian? I know, and he's German. Oh, German, yeah, yeah. sounds guilty to me. Yeah. Well, he wasn't. It turns out he wasn't. There were four investigations into him, and every one of them, huge investigations, every one of them found the same thing, was that he had not violated university policy. But from the coverage of his case, you would not have known that. Um, and what this told me was that, and this was, this was mostly being covered at the height of Me Too, was that these journalists were coming in with the assumption of guilt. Journalists should be skeptical, and it can be uncomfortable to be skeptical of people who are making accusations and talking about their traumatic experiences, but as journalists, it is our job to be skeptical of everybody. Yeah, one thing that's bothered me about the last few years in journalism is um, Wesley Lowry is a really talented reporter. Uh, I think 60 Minutes now, he's at the Washington Post. He came up with this idea of moral clarity, and his argument was that all too often, journalists have taken the word of the powerful at face value. Like the cops are like, well, we shot that guy because he was coming at us, and you just report that as though it's true. And I think that's a fair critique of journalism. I just I worry that oftentimes moral clarity is translated as you should just do the same thing, but for the other side. Just accept the good side without any skepticism. And that's where just I don't know, I just think we, we slip into activism. Yeah, and there is I think there's a place for activism within journalism, but not at outlets that are not supposed to be activists. Yeah, yeah, it does get fuzzy. Um, we just have a couple more minutes before we bring our guest on stage. I guess maybe the best question to end with is I'm, we started a show about internet bullshit because we were like pretty furious about the state of journalism and the stuff going on on some campuses. And I think we were pretty inspired by like the fifth column, uh, outlets no. like that. Yeah. <laughs> Do not tell Camille that. Um, <laughs> I think things are getting better. And when people come at me and they, they say, I can't trust any mainstream journalism, I think the campuses have gone crazy, I sort of think there's reason for hope. And I'm not sure it's like, I think it's, sometimes it's just hope like market forces, like newspapers realize they can't run stories that only the 5% of wokest college graduates want. They need to appeal to a broader audience. So like, I don't know, it's just like capitalism. I, I, do you agree that things are getting better? There's a vibe shift I keep hearing about, and, uh, and I think I can see this. Awkward. Is that like big dick energy? I don't know the young people. I don't, I don't speak that's, Zoomer. No, that's vibrator shift. Okay. <laughs> I think there is the success of, of our project, of the various, I think everyone here probably has a sub stack, um, the success of places like that. Jesse Single.substack.com. <laughs> Ignore him. 
Um, I think it shows that there is a, yes, there is a market for the sort of work that we're doing and other people are doing. And so, of course, other outlets want to, uh, or, or the big bosses want to capitalize on this. But I think there, the vibe shift is also coming in sort of a bigger sense. And, and we see this in small ways. CNN just decided that they're no longer going to be covering breaking news, which I think is actually a positive development. They're going to try to, to find, where's, where's Megan down? They're going to try to find the nuance. They're taking your, taking your beat. Um, so I, there are small, uh, small bits of hope. Yeah, there are small bits of hope, which are good. Well, I guess, why don't we wrap that here? We'll leave more time for Q&A. Should we bring our guests on stage? Yeah, Eric, you want to come up? This is your, sit in the middle of that water's your All right, Eric Smith is an associate professor of rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. His primary work focuses on the rhetorics of anti-racist activism, theory, and pedagogy. He is a co-founder of Free Black Thought, a website dedicated to highlighting viewpoint diversity within the black intelligentsia. And his recent books include A Critique of Anti-Racism and Rhetoric and Composition and The Lure of Disempowerment, Reclaiming Agency in the Age of CRT. He's also a writing fellow for the Heterodox Academy, an advisor for the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism and Counterweight, an organization that advocates for classical liberal concepts of social justice. Eric, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me. He also, it turns out... No, no, no. She's still going. Yeah. <laughs> he also, it turns out, uh, our our furry friend did some digging on you and found out that you wrote a book on the fat acceptance movement. So we will ask you about that later, perhaps. <laughs> How can such a thin man? It just seems like appropriation of some sort. I, I literally forget I wrote that. <laughs> the prologue was interesting. You did call yourself a cis man. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Okay, but let's start with your cancellation story, for lack of a better term. Everybody, I, at my first heterodox Academy of Conference, as, as John Hyde said in, the, in, the, in the, the intro, or the keynote, everybody has a story, right? So what's yours, for lack of a better, of a better term, what's your cancellation story? Okay, whenever I tell this story, I feel like I'm giving like a superhero's origin story. That's not, I'm not that narcissistic. I don't actually think I'm a superhero. Although not caring when people try to mob you on social media does feel like a superpower yep. sometimes. It feels like, uh, you know, I'm immortal and they're just trying to, you know, uh, destroy me. Which makes me off. smile. See, I'm, there's something wrong with me. You know, I actually enjoy it. You know, I, I like when they're like, oh, we're going to mob you. I'm like, bring it. I'm having a very boring day. Let's go. What was the question? Uh, so give us your story. So, so your origin story involves a conflict within the field of rhetoric. Can you describe that conflict for us? Yes. Uh, so in 2019, March 23rd, if I'm not mistaken, 2019. I remember it well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a keynote address. Actually, it was the day before. Uh, a keynote address at this conference, the flagship conference in my field, the Conference of College Composition and Communication. The keynote speaker, Sal Inoue, I'm going to name him, actually, this is the thesis statement, it's racist to teach black kids standard English because that perpetuates white supremacy. Mm -hmm. and, I have a question. Yeah. What? <laughs> Well, that's how I got in trouble. Yeah. You know, the next day on the listserv, listservs, I should have known. I said, you know, is that a good idea, really? You know, to, you know, 
call something that is so important, a skill that may come in handy one day, you know, being able to write in standardized English. Is that really a good idea? I think it ain't. What? what? That ain't a good idea. <laughs> oh, I see what you did. <laughs> well, the, the response I got was, um, you know, capital V, vitriolic, right? Um, and it's very odd, very odd being called a white supremacist by a white person. That was weird. It was weird. The cognitive dissonance hasn't gone away yet. Uh -huh. The dust hasn't settled, really. You know, it explains my uh, slight insanity. But I realized then what was going on. And I, I, I knew, you know, the, the woke people were out there, right? I didn't realize that they totally took over because there is nobody on my side. And this took, this took place for days, right? The listserv and Twitter. And it's me versus like a thousand people. And these are, sorry, these are white people piling on you about this? Uh, white and black. Yeah. Yeah, it was a multicultural endeavor. Rainbow coalition. Yes. Rainbow, rainbow coalition, coalition of assholes. Of assholes. It was beautiful. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I realized then what was going on, and I realized that I survived this. You know, there's one way of getting over your fears is to actually have the fear happen. And once the fear happened, I was like, oh my God, I'm still breathing. I'm still here. Let's do it again. <laughs> and I, I realized that because there are so few people speaking up that I have to do it as often and as, and as loudly as possible. So that totally changed my career path, right? I was going to talk about totally different things and suddenly I'm here, I'm the anti-woke guy now. And it really surprised a lot of people who knew me because I'm, I'm, I'm a nice guy. You know, well, I was <laughs> a nice guy. And, and here's the analogy I use. Star Wars fans here? Yeah? All right. On March 22nd, I was Anakin. And on March 23rd, I was Darth Vader. That's how people see it, you know, because I, I realized I made a decision, a conscious decision, to be this guy. And here I am. When something like that is happening online, um, what percentage of people in the community in question do you think actually thought it was white supremacists to teach black kids standard English? Like, what's the level of pluralistic ignorance here where it's just everyone think everyone else thinks this and, like, three crazy people dictate the conversation? Um, well, it's more than three crazy people. I, I can definitely say that. Um, and is it the majority of the field? Probably not. But it might as well be because nobody's speaking up. Yeah, so did you have that experience where you get the public criticism and the private support? Um, I got some private support, you know, some back channel emails and things like that, and I appreciated it. Not many, but, you know, enough. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, if, even if 90% of the people agree with me, very few of them are speaking up. Yeah. So, I mean, what's the point? And you've actually been a diversity officer. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Uh, well, I mean, I kind of have PTSD from it, so I don't know if I can deal with this. This is a safe space. Um, this, is, this is the aughts, you know, um, and a little bit into uh, last decade. This is pre-woke tsunami, right? So it's not as bad, it wasn't as bad as it is now. Nevertheless, it's very hard to get people to not be assholes, you know? You, you can't, they have to I, want I to do that. I work with Katie, like I'm well aware of this. <laughs> Knew that was coming. People have to want to do that, yeah. you know, and, and I'm the guy forcing them to, you know, to open their minds and things like that. Um, and I mean, 
I found myself preaching to the choir all the time. Like the people who needed to be there weren't there. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what the hell am I doing here, right? And it, it, it's, it was a matter of time before I realized, you know, it was a cipher position, meaning that nobody expected me to do anything important. I think the the um, accrediting company or something said, you need a diversity officer. And they said, all right, well, this guy is a sucker. Let's hire him for this. And that's what happened. And I'm not doing that anymore, and I never will again. Do you think there's a way to do diversity training or have diversity initiatives that are actually positive and, and lead to positive changes? Yes, but you don't have to call it diversity training. You can call it empowerment. I focus on, as you probably know, from your uh, meticulous reading of all my books. <laughs> the fat acceptance one was very good. It, it probably was, I just don't remember it. <laughs> empowerment. And when you talk about empowerment as a theory, and this comes from a psychology, I know I'm not a psychologist, but I believe it is a rhetorical endeavor, so it is my wheelhouse. Okay. <laughs> empowerment is all about self-awareness, uh, emotional self-control, as well as social awareness, reading the room understanding that people come from different discourse communities, which is to say that they uh, come from places with different values, attitudes, and beliefs, and so do you, and recognize that, and I don't know, inquire into their values, attitudes, and beliefs. Have some empathy, have some curiosity, right? And third, find some superordinate goals, and what I mean by that is, you know, uh, you can have totally disparate groups, but they all have one goal, and they realize that they'll, they'll achieve that goal better, if they work together, right? So self-awareness, social awareness, collaboration. That will trickle down into things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So you, you don't have to pinpoint it. This is a general thing, empowerment. A lot of the mobbing that happened to me came from people who are clearly disempowered. They don't feel like they have power. They don't feel like they have an adequate amount of dignity. Uh, in my last book, I call it a dignity grab, right? Um, when they degrade you on social media, it's because they have no other, to their minds anyway, they have no other way of acquiring this dignity. And if they get rid of me, maybe they can feel something, you know? That's what's going on. They need empowerment. So that's how I approach it. I don't, I don't even do the, hey, this is DEI. I do, hey, this is empowerment. Apply it to DEI and anything else you want to do. I think that like one noteworthy characteristic of how we talk about identity is that a lot of people's understanding of identity I, I find just pretty unhealthy or maybe not empowering. I mean, wh where do you draw that line? What does it mean to, we all have aspects of ourselves that we didn't choose, like our skin color or, or um, where we're from or Katie being a jerk, stuff like that. What's, I, I did choose that. St <laughs> stuff you didn't choose, is it never a good idea to make it central to your identity or it's like, what's like the balancing act there? Um, do I really have to answer that impossible question? <laughs> I'm curious to get your thoughts. You've thought a lot about this. Um, I identify as a Pisces. Um, Sagittarius rising. Of course. Pisces moon. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mercury in Pisces. Definitely. Yeah, I know. M and P? What? <laughs> All right, okay. Um, well... This really overlaps with the de-individuation going on um, in a lot of um, woke activism. And what I mean by that is, you know, there seems to be an attack on individuality. The, um, the last conference uh, that I uh, spoke about earlier, the one for 2022, 
I can't tell you how many sessions were about hyper-individuality. And when you ask them to define hyper-individuality, they defined individuality, right? And I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if people are individuals, well, you know, they, they have a past, they have memories, they have, uh, you know, their mom's voice in their head saying, maybe you shouldn't mob this person on social media, you know? They're actual people. When you de-individuate somebody, then they're just like some kind of force that can be used, right? That can be manipulated. And that's exactly what they want. You know, the leaders in the field, that's exactly what they want. In fact, some will tell you outright, yeah, I'm trying to push aside individuality. So if you're going to have an identity, that's great, as long as you also have individuality. That way you can actually choose it on your own. You have some agency. I chose Pisces, right? <laughs> and if I wanted to choose black Pisces, fine. I have that prerogative, but that's not what's going on now. What's going on now is, here are your identities. You have four of them. You have to choose one of them. And if you don't choose these four, you're the problem, and we're going to destroy you. Right? That's what's going on now. Did your experience being mobbed, I've, I've talked to a lot of people over the last couple of years who've had a similar experience, and it changes them politi politically. There's a lot of talk about people, you know, the left lost me. They have some experience and they, and they, some experience on Twitter, and all of a sudden that shifts how they vote. Did you experience that as well? Um, to a degree. I mean, I didn't go all the way to the other side. I'm a lifelong Democrat. Um, but then you hear Biden say things like, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. And, you know, I'm like, okay, maybe I should rethink things right now. Maybe independent. Maybe I should start talking to some libertarians. <laughs> oh no, we've been watching what's happening in New Hampshire, you guys <laughs> it, it, it seems like, and I was telling somebody else this the other day, it seems like the Democratic Party doesn't like me. You know, it doesn't like me. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I know when I'm not wanted. You know, I'm going to take off. I don't know where I'm going. I'm a bit of an orphan right now. But I'd rather be an orphan than be someplace where I'm not liked. But, but what accounts for that divide? Because, like, I saw... Pelosi and the mall wear the kente cloth and they say black lives matter. What, what is the, ver no, what is the version of like blackness or black people they think they're appealing to? Cause I agree. It's not, it's not like the median democratic black voter. Um, I don't know if they, it's so much that they think they're appealing to somebody as they want to appeal to somebody there. They have a preferred black identity that they want to use. Um, that fits into the narrative um, and I, I think that's what's going on. That's why, you know, um, the phenomenon of a white person telling a black person how to be black is a thing, right? If you want to see that live, come to the next conference, you know, in my field, and you will see it, right? I had somebody the other day on, on, on Facebook try to uh, do that to me. I'm like, dude, do you understand what's happening right now? You're all about anti-racism, but you're telling the black guy how to be black. That doesn't, nothing? Yeah, it's funny how identity does not protect, in, in this moment when identity or identitarianism is very big, your identity doesn't actually protect you. From, no. You know, if you say that, if you, if you have a heterodox view. In fact, it might make things worse. Is it as simple as highly educated white liberals who have particular views just want it to be the case that like black Americans agree with them? Because there are all these issues, including like really hot button ones like police abolition and defunding, where in 
when I open the times and I see the, the views expressed often by like black pundits, it's just, it's very, not that a black pundit has to express the median black view, but it's just, these are not popular positions in the community they're supposedly for. I mean, what, what account, it's just, there's a really weird divide there. I wish I better understood. Well, that makes two of us. <laughs> um, but what's more, I, 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 I'm not speaking for black America. No, you are, right it's now? okay, he is, he is. No, no, no. <laughs> you have our permission. I, I, I would. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, again, I think a part of it is, you know, this attack on individuality, right? Um, black people are, are a monolith. They're uh, essentially one thing with the same hopes and dreams and desires and, and taste in food and cars and colors. That's not the case, you know, um, but it's easier to do that way and it's easier to make that identity cool. Right? And a lot of what's happening right now is the fact that, oh, this whole victim thing, speaking truth to power, that's cool now. It's in. You know, uh, it's a fad. And if you don't feel cool, if you don't feel like you have the, uh, the right amount of dignity and, and, and self-esteem and positive self-regard, well, then, well, I'll just fit myself into this narrative. Now I'm cool, whitey. <laughs> and a lot of that's what's going on, too. So there is this overarching narrative that is taking the place of God, right? And they're abiding by that. Everything has to abide by the narrative. They don't care what you show them. They don't care what kind of information you have. Everything has to abide by the narrative. And I have so many stories about people abiding by the narrative, but I won't give them right now because I don't want to cry in public. <laughs> Again, this is a safe space. Uh, so let's shift back to the university for a second. When you were dogpiled, when all of this when all of this happened, did you get any support from your university administration? Oh no, 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 no. Um, well, your college is interesting. Like nobody cared. It's, it's like it wasn't happening, right? And I was like, I'm not going to bring it up then, you know. Um, but it, it seemed it was a non-issue there. And that's fine, I'm very comfortable at this school, I like it, I'm tenured, you know. I'm gonna stick around probably. How do you think that university administrators could better support heterodox thinkers? Um, remember that they're teaching or working at a college? That'll be nice. A liberal arts college, perhaps. Liberal arts emphasizing dialogue, deliberative rhetoric, critical inquiry. You know, just remembering who they are and where they are would be very nice. And you've been, you've been teaching for a while. How have your students changed over time? How have they changed over time? Um, they're much more cool, and I'm much older. <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm not that hip, young professor anymore. And, and now, yeah. Specifically in terms of this kind of thing, are you seeing, we see lots of polling on students' attitudes about free speech, Social justice, things like that. Um, again, the uh, woke tsunami hasn't hit your college the way it has other institutions, but I do have people, students, come to my office hours and say, I know you said we can say whatever we want and it's safe and stuff like that, but no, I can't. You know, I, I can't. I can tell you, I can't say this in, in class. I'm like, yeah, you can, don't worry about it. And they're like, nope, nope, no, I can't. And they're right. <laughs> Katie and I both frequently get emails from from academics who like feel like they can't express totally mainstream positions 
the most like anguished emails I've gotten from people who sound like so desperate rhetoric and composition. There seems to be something uniquely dysfunctional about this. More than philosophy? I think they're like close ties. Rhetoric and comp just seems really messed up. Am I, I mean, am I wrong? Oh, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. I mean, I mean, it's a, a more accurate description is woke studies. You know, it's not rhetoric and composition. It's woke studies. But why is that particular field so off the rails? Oh, God, that's a long story. Um, there's a... Um, inferiority complex among rhetoric and composition. Yeah, I still don't know what it is, so that could be... Well, I mean, well, you know, they originated in English departments, and, you know, English departments were like, you guys do writing and, and persuasion? You're not, you're not talking about what this blue curtain means in this novel? You're not doing that? So there was always this kind of, uh, you know, inferiority complex, and they needed to do something right, to um, feel important. They split off. There are a lot more um, rhetoric and composition departments that stand alone right now, right? But there, there's still this, I don't know, emptiness there that they feel they need to fill. So then people come along and, oh, um, I'm doing woke stuff. There's no woke department, but there's this department over here that doesn't really know what it is. So I'm going to use that as a Trojan horse Right? And then I'm going to get tenure and ruin academia. <laughs> and that's, that seems to be what's happening right now. Um, and, and the Trojan horse thing is very real. Um, in my field, there aren't rhetoric professors doing activism. They're activists doing rhetoric. You know, they are activists first. And when you're an activist first, then you're going to cater your research to the activist goals you have. Right? It's no longer about critical thinking and having the, 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 the truth and, and proper knowledge emerge. Now it's a, oh, um, this is the result of this research? Eh, I don't like it, so I'm going to pretend it's not there because it's not woke enough and it doesn't support what I want. And that happens more than you think. Do you guys have the dynamic where, like, the, the, in, in philosophy, I know there are, like, these Twitter celebrities who actually aren't that well-respected as philosophers, but Jason they, like... Stanley, Jason Stanley? <laughs> I didn't say anything. I would never criticize them. Um, is there that dynamic where there's people who like make a name for themselves just by being jerks online, and, and but they don't actually produce good work? Um, in my field, yeah. I think the closest person to that is me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, they're not courageous people, right? Um, I remember when I was being mobbed. You know, people, uh, you know, spouting woke things at me and other people saying, you're so brave for saying that. I'm like, this is the safest place you can possibly say that. You know, there's, there's no safer place to say, you know, uh, uh, standard dialects are inherently racist than this listserv in this field. You're not being brave. I am. Right? So that kind of thing doesn't really happen uh, in my field. It's, uh, it's a lot of, um, oh, God, I'm being so mean right now. Cowards. That's sort of the, what's what the podcast is, to be honest. I, and it's live, right? I know, I know. You had me on your first live show. What did I do to you? Well, <laughs> normally Jesse is the butt of all of it. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to ask Eric, or should we shift into... Yeah, I, I do have another question. Okay, back to that 2018 book on the fat acceptance movement. Yeah. So you write about being a diversity officer, and in the prologue, at least, which is uh, admittedly the only part that I read, you seem to embrace what I would call critical social justice. You, ter you use terms like intersectionality, you acknowledge your own privilege as a cisgender male, 
And I'm wondering what the Eric Smith of 2018 would think about the Eric Smith of 2022. Wait, did I really say intersectionality? Oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes. She's got receipts. <laughs> did, I, did I talk about my privilege? Yes, you did. And I, and I was so surprised that I made sure, I went and I made sure that I was actually, you were the same Eric Smith. Yes, you did. Okay, I thought I wrote a book about... <laughs> Um, the activism in size acceptance and how it was being so successful and how they were abiding by Anthony Giddens' uh, theory of structuration and how that was working for them. And basically, it was a how-to. Like, see how they're doing this? This is great, right? This works. Um, and I was trying to defend people who I did think were being unfairly treated, right? Uh, people who, you know... Uh, you know, we're all about health, but at the time they were, you know, people of size and they were getting crapped on and I didn't like that. And I mean, it was clear that it was, it seemed like the last acceptable form of discrimination, right? You can't call me the N-word, but you can call somebody fat. No, that's against podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you think that you've changed since you, since you wrote that book? Um, well, yes, substantially. Um, I haven't changed. I mean, I still, I, I don't, you know, hate people of size or anything like that. Um, but I've changed in that a lot of things that um, people say are characteristics of victims and things like that, I, I, I think it's overblown, right? And I would write a very different book today. I would not write a book about activism in the size acceptance movement. Um, but I would say, here are the real issues, and let's focus on the real issues and not whatever's going on over here. Right, this quote-unquote wokeness over here. I would be more specific with it, and I would be, um, you know, more real with it. Uh, well, we're going to keep you on stage to answer questions, but thank you so much for talking to us about all this. All right, thank you. So I believe I believe we have um, two mic runners. It's a term I just learned. Yeah, if anyone a has a question, raise your hand. question for any of us. All questions welcome. Hey, thanks uh, for being here tonight. Big fan of the podcast. Uh, so earlier, Katie mentioned that it's a journalist's job to be skeptical of everything, and I love that principle. Now, I'm a total outsider to the journalistic industry and have no idea how journalistic sausage is made, so I wanted to know, what do you think are the forces behind the abandonment of this principle? Is it something in the way that we educate and train journalists, or is there just a battle against the temptation to be partisan that everyone in the field has to fight constantly? Um, I mean, I, I think since the reckoning, well, first of all, there's never been a clear line between like objectivity and activism, and it's something journalists have argued about forever. I think we both know, all three of us know, that since the reckoning, there's been this push to become more activist in both journalism and in academia. And I know in journalism, it's often a relatively small group who will just make your life miserable. Like if you express any dissent in like the Slack chat or whatever, I'll never forget an editor I really respect said that um, during an editorial meeting at a, a big magazine you guys have heard of, um, he or someone else pitched a story written from a pro-life or anti-abortion perspective, whatever we're calling it. And a staffer at the magazine said they shouldn't run that for the same reason they wouldn't run a pro-Nazi piece. So once you, like, escalate the level of rhetoric to the point of, uh, well, maybe being anti-abortion is the same as being a Nazi, it's sort of hard, I think, for anyone to... Be, who wants to be the person who's like, actually, that analogy is fucking stupid. <laughs> it's just, it's hard to be that person. I think there's some structural forces uh, at play here as well. This is something Matt Tybee has talked about a lot, but journalism used to be a working-class job, and now it, it 
pays oftentimes less than working class wages, but it attracts people from specific schools. Uh, if you want to get a job at the New York Times or National Public Radio or something like that, you're probably going to have to do an internship in a big city. They're now just starting to pay interns, still probably below living wages. So that takes a level of privilege. Um, and I think it attracts people of a certain milieu and a certain ideological bent. Um, what I would like to see is outlets hiring from community colleges outlets hiring people who didn't go to college at all, outlets hiring people who grew up in trailer parks and in public housing. That is rare in, in this field. Um, so I, th I think that's part of it. it. It sort of attracts a certain type of person. Jesse is this type of person, I'm not. I'm of the people. Right, both of the people. D does what we just said, do you think that applies more or less to academia? How does like the sort of departmental sniping and slack stuff work there? How do like people sort of seize control over what you're allowed to say you know, even in internal meetings? Um, guilt. Yeah. And shame. And 2020. Yeah. Honestly, that was the Reichstag fire for all of this. And nobody wants to be the bad guy. And there are people with good hearts out there who are trying to do the right thing. And there are people with bad hearts who know that good-hearted people are there that they could use. Yeah. Yeah, it's happening. I think it's often just as much about people not speaking up than people... Oh, God, dude, yeah. that is my... May I? I? I need to talk about this. Go. All right. Um, this is my third event. I don't know what this is, really. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it is an event, technically. Uh, I mean, I mean it's just, uh, say what you will, the quality. Is it, is it a speaking engagement? Okay, whatever. Um, my third event this week in which I've given this quote because I firmly believe that it says everything I feel about people who don't speak up. Um, it's attributed to Dante, but I don't know if he really said it. Um, the hottest places in hell are reserved for people who, in a moral crisis, maintain their neutrality. That makes me want to go up to tenured professors who aren't saying anything and say, there is a special place in hell for you because you're not speaking up. 90% of this is because of you, right? Say something. If you're tenured in five years from retirement, you don't say anything, dude. Like, that's the cowardice I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Right? So, so uh, yeah, I just wanted to vent. Sorry. No, that's a good quote. I should get this Dante guy to write for my newsletter, I think. <laughs> um, any, other, any other questions? Wait, I'm not done oh, yet. You're not done. Yeah. We'll get to you next. I, I think also uh, the election of Donald Trump really changed things in a way because all of a sudden people wanted to be on the right side of history. All of a sudden it seemed imperative. And do we have any on the media or maybe former on the media listeners in here? Former. Yeah. After Donald Trump was elected, this is worth listening to on the media show that I, I loved for many years. They uh, basically laid down all their cards and said, no, we are an activist podcast, or we are an activist show now. This is, this is the moment we have to be on the right side of history. It destroyed this show. Um, and I, I think that's a big part of it, so blame Trump. Mike, thank you. Yeah, so, um, hi, Mike Sanders. Um, so, you know, you mention a lot of things like when you're talking about your your comment and stuff like that, and it's like white people telling you that you're racist and all that kind of stuff, and there's virtue signaling or whatever. One of the things that I've kind of observed in sort of a practical kind of situation is I've lived in a lot of different places. I live in New Orleans right now. 
So when 2020, everything was going down, all that kind of stuff. I used to live in Austin, has an 8% black population. Portland has like six. Seattle has maybe seven. Those cities were on fire. New Orleans, hardly a peep. Obviously, there were some, you know, uh, there were some conflicts, but at the one point that I saw that there was any sort of like police conflict or whatever was, there were people coming over a bridge. The police said, if you cross this line, you're gonna get taken care of. There were people, black people and everything like that, saying, do not come across this line. So when they came across that line, Everybody was understandable about it. Uh, who's setting those fires in Austin? The people setting the fires are the people who don't want to let a good crisis go to waste, right? Um, people who are not satisfied with the status quo, not satisfied with hegemony, right? You know, have a special place in their heart for Marx and Lenin. And they see this and say, oh, we can ride this wave. And I mean, if we're going to talk about socialists and Marxists and things like that, I know I sound like a conspiracy theorist right now, but I'm not. Um, the, the use, the objectification and, and, and manipulation of people of color for their purposes goes back a long time. There's a book about how Trotsky was doing it, right? Uh, Marcuse was like, we don't need to create a proletariat. They're right there. They're pissed. Let's ride that wave. And it's happening again right now. This is a tried and true tactic. And, you know, frankly, I'm a little offended. You know, I'm more than just your tool, you know. But um, you shouldn't be surprised that they don't listen. It's just a pet peeve of mine. I've written about this a little, but like, again, whenever we, race is in certain ways dumb, and whenever we talk about our racial groups, like beliefs, we're hugely oversimplifying. But you can say what's like, how does this issue pull among black Americans? And the way a lot of liberal journalists have covered this stuff, it, it really ignores the fact that all the polling for decades has suggested that black people have like a fairly tortured relationship to the police. It's not, I don't want them in my neighborhood. It's a mix of like, when they show up, they abuse us, but when something serious happens, they don't show up. And there's, there just isn't any real support for like major defunding or abolition. I'll never forget the New York Times writing a front page article set in Minneapolis where they interviewed activists between the bylines and the researchers, 12 New York Times journalists wrote a piece only interviewing people of color who were in favor of defunding and abolition. They, they couldn't, it's statistically impossible that they couldn't have found someone on the street who had the more nuanced median view of this, but they just, it, they whitewash it, for lack of a better word, and that's, it's just been a pet peeve of mine. I remember, uh, oh, I worked at The Stranger, which is Seattle's Alt Weekly before um, COVID blissfully ended that um, and brought me to this podcast. And we would do, uh, we would interview political candidates, people running for office, and I cannot tell you the number of meetings that I was in with my primarily white colleagues who were interviewing mostly black people who were running for various city offices and were basically, would tell them, tell them what their communities wanted. And when these people who were running for office would say, no, we are not in favor of defunding the police, we want better policing. It was, as, it, I mean, it was like, it was like, they were shocked, you know, not, not even shocked, they just dismissed it as though they knew better. They all went, they live in Chop Chows now, so. I, I, told the, I told this story on a podcast, but I got in an argument with a dinner at a dinner recently, uh, and I explained what I just explained to this 
kid uh, about the difference between what white liberals and most black Jesse eats dinner with lots of children. Say again? You eat dinner with lots of children. Lots of, yeah. Kid, meaning someone who's like 35. Uh, and when I, when I explained to him this polling divide and that most, most black people aren't in favor of defunding the police, he said, direct quote, they have Uncle Tom syndrome. It was, I had never heard it that. I almost thought like when people said like white liberals could be that racist that they'd, no offense, like been exaggerating a little bit. That was the first time. I, it was crazy. Anyway, we should. I think that's, that's a good quote to add. Right there. We had him first. He was, he was right. Okay, her then her. Yeah, him then her. Hey, I got a quick question for Eric. So, you know, you talked about empowerment earlier, which I think is great. You know, we see a lot of anxiety from students in the classroom around these things who also don't want to be called out and destroyed. And so I think they're feeling that. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how we can better empower our students so that they're more courageous and can stand up to these things, and in particular, with how we talk about race. Well, when I talk about empowerment in class, I couch it in rhetorical theory. So I, I consider it a rhetorical endeavor, how we talk to ourselves, how we talk to others, how we talk within a team to get things done, right? Um, so it, there's a practical element to it as well. You know, so uh, the, the empowerment is almost inadvertent. However, what they really need to see, and, and I firmly believe this, is somebody standing up to this, right? They need to see somebody modeling this. They need to see how it, how it looks to push back. And when they retaliate, to laugh. You know, they need to see that. They need to see an empowered person dealing with this. And then they can say, oh, okay, I can do this. Or, or they say, it's possible to push back because they don't think so. Yep. Right? So the modeling of it is, is something that needs to happen, which is why I'm so upset at tenured professors who don't do anything. Um, should we go here? Hey, to start off with the most important question bipolar or bisexual? Choose a lane. <laughs> <laughs> Binary. There's a serious question. Married? So, Identify. Say again? Bipolar or bisexual? Choose a lane. Me, probably bipolar. <laughs> if I have, it's a forced choice. On a serious note, though, the whole shit show there, I'm from the Mountain West. I'm from one state over, and we have incredibly high suicide rates. Our, our mental health was already bad generations back. And I'm really, really wondering, your perch, um, extremely online people, what the direction of causality here is here is um, Jonathan Haidt, um, Height uh, justified doing an intervention. I'm really, re I work with teenagers, um, help them get into college, and even in 10 years, the stats are there, the um, anecdotal experience, it just seems miserable to be young and to be on the internet too much. So, what would you suggest, either on an individual level, if you're like, this has gotten out of hand, I need to touch grass, or just the societal effects, and if you have any cautious optimism, or if it's just going to keep. Katie, you have a dog, so you're the resident yeah. touching grass expert. Uh, I think this is really difficult because, like, if you're a parent, you can not let your kids have a cell phone. You can do that, because we know that social media, Instagram in particular, from, in part from, from John's research, shows that this is bad for mental health. Well, being left out is also bad for mental health. So it's, don't have kids, I don't know, but get a dog. I'll sell you moose puppies. 
Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer here. I mean, I also, I think these things are cyclical and we're in a weird cycle right now and eventually it will end. I don't know if there will have to be some catalyst or things will just gradually ebb and flow. Um, but I do think it's, it's worth remembering that these things are cyclical and they come and go on their own sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm like maybe slightly more skeptical than John about that you can draw like such a clear causal connection because like for one of many examples of how this stuff gets confounded is like during some of the same time of this stuff, you had sort of the tail end of like a world historical recession that really affected people's quality of life and how do you separate out what's that, what's being online. It does seem intuitively obvious to me that if you already have some mental health concerns, um, I've just, I've seen so many cases where it seems like Twitter destroys someone's brain and I just can't imagine the exact same thing would happen if Twitter didn't exist. I just, I try to be cautious about like making causal claims. It just, it doesn't seem to be good. There's also this other weird element. Okay, so I was in, I said this on the podcast, so some of you may have heard it, but I was in a, a, a restaurant in Eastern Washington a couple months ago and I was doing what I do, which was eavesdropping on the people beside me. And there were two moms, you know, uh, white, middle-aged, and one of them said to the other, it is so cool to be mentally ill right now. And she wasn't saying this like, oh, it's, she was saying it like she was talking about her child's experience. And we see this on things like TikTok where kids manifest these weird dissociative identity disorders and have these strange tics that maybe that's why they call it TikTok. And so that's, you know, and also the gender stuff is a part of that. So I think there's this very bizarre moment right now where you get social clout for being a victim. And that includes things like mental health. That's huge in your neck of the woods. Like people just like stacking their self-diagnosed mental illnesses and whatever oppression they face. It seems particularly concentrated among some professors, I feel like. The bright side to all this is that fads go away. I don't see any bell bottles in here. They're right? coming back. Maybe one day, you know, not being mentally ill will be cool again. And, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, so there's that. You know, but I mean, the, the number of people who are identifying, um, and, um, you know, as, uh, you know, people with certain mental illnesses and things like that, it has skyrocketed very recently. And I think you're onto something. I, I firmly believe that. Can we, can we make fun of the Stanford kid for one minute? The oh, dining hall? All right, do it, do it. This kid, we're, I'm not going to name him, but this kid got dragged into this recent Washington Post controversy. He's an engineer there. And as soon as you get involved in one of these controversies, people do the most assholeish thing imaginable, which is like pick up Google any, they, they Google you and they find anything you've written. This was a kid who had like at 21 as a junior at Stanford, he wrote a column in the Stanford whatever about how his, his eating disorder, which he'd never sought help for, was preventing him from going to the dining hall because he was too anxious. And it was Stanford's fault that they didn't know he had a mental health disorder he hadn't sought help for, and they need to prepackage the food? Yeah, the, the eating disorder, it wasn't like he was anorexic. His, his eating disorder manifested as he would get anxious if the food wasn't pre-portioned. Yeah. I don't think this one's in the DSM. No. And again, it's obviously not making fun of, like, mental, look at us, but look you do need you. to, like, seek help, and you can't expect the world to know what you need if you won't say so. Um, any other? Uh, let's go there first, then here, if that's cool. I saw that one first. You're next. Um, this connects to something Eric said, but feel free, anyone can take it. You, you quoted Dante, and you said, this, there's a special place in hell, or maybe Dante, there's a special place in hell for those who don't um, speak up. That reminds me of, you know, for lack of a better term, a woke slogan of, you know, if you're not 
on the side of the oppressed, you're on the side of the oppressor, basically leaving no room for neutrality. So is, the, is there a tension there? Like I, it brings to mind the hidden tribe survey of this exhausted majority that's in the middle that just doesn't have time or effort to weigh in on all of these issues. So is there a distinction or is there a tension there? And this can go to any of the three of you. Uh, the short answer is no. Um, but, and, and here's why. I was talking about tenured professors who actually are, you know, upset with the way things are going, right? Um, they are upset with uh, this, this woke tidal wave. They talk about it with other people. But when it comes time to, you know, push back against it, to, to model it for the kids, perhaps, or to just not want your uh, department or entire institution to devolve into this, they don't say anything. And I'm talking about tenured professors, full professors, established, who have no integrity. And I'm, I don't think I'm being too harsh on them. There are a lot of professors who have precarious positions. Um, they're not tenured. They're adjunct faculty. They have mouths to feed and mortgages to pay. I get that. And then there are other people like me who are much less risk, if any at all, and they're staying silent because they want to be comfortable at the next cocktail party. And if you're that person, then screw you. I'm sorry. Um, we have five minutes. Let's see if we can get two more right here, and then we'll go back there. So here first, please. Get a mic. I am Nick Wolfinger, a longtime listener. First oh, hey, time. Nick. I didn't recognize you. Hey, sorry. <laughs> first time talker. Uh, <laughs> Um, you batted around a bunch of ideas about where this all came from. John Haidt talks about the proliferation of devices and social media. You hinted at the great, Jesse, you hinted at the recession. Katie, you said it's cyclical. I might also point at downstream effects of the election of the first African-American president. Uh, I might also look to the collapse of social institutions of various kinds. Where did it come from? What do you guys... Any other ideas? I've figured it out. I, no, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I do think there's something about, you know, people talk about the loneliness epidemic, right? This idea, I'm not religious. I, I, it, if I could go back in 15 years, go back 15 years and tell myself that, you know, someday future Katie is going to advocate for going to church, I would have thought that I'd lost my mind. But there is something about a lack of community. And I think a lot of that comes from the internet. And COVID obviously has exacerbated this, but people have fewer friends. Young people are having less sex. When you go to a bar, when I used to go to bars all the time, you would sit and you would meet the person beside you and you would talk and have a conversation. Now you sit and look at your phone. And I think that's really, uh, what's the word, deleterious? Is that the word? Jesse likes to correct my... Oh, sounds about right. Okay. Um, to society and to individuals, we just don't talk to people anymore. We type at them. I'm, I, it's such like a trendy answer, but I'm curious if like the decline of like organized religion is like it, you sublimate it, it pops up elsewhere like a whack-a-mole thing because people just like want easy answers and like heroes and villains. I, I, it's, I'm a social science writer. I shouldn't say like I believe that because there's no way to know, but I'm very intrigued by that theory and somewhat sympathetic to it. I mean, I think religion is just a stand-in for community. It could be your bowling league or your union well, or not your, just, whatever. That's a big part of it, but also like this sort of um, cosmology of good and evil figures and simple beliefs in very little shades of gray. I have no freaking idea. But <laughs> that's, that's the, the most honest answer of the three. <laughs> I mean, I, well, the thing is, I have various ideas, and it's kind of like a, the perfect storm 
you know, and um, it's hard to pinpoint which is the most salient cause. So that's why I have no this idea. This is a podcast. Whatever bullshit pops in your head, you just state that authoritatively. Oh, you tell me now? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do a last question here. I guess I'll end on the uh, uh, sort of a big picture question or a meta question. And it's, um, can, what do you think about the argument that, or uh, somebody who, who says, well, what has been the impact of a podcast like yours on the, on the rhetoric and on the environment as a whole? So I can think of at least two different responses. One is that it's empowered people who kind of already agreed with you and maybe were in the sidelines or such and were on this, you know, just didn't have the, the courage to come forward and to say, yeah, this is a bunch of bullshit and let's talk about it. The other one is that it's sort of throwing blood in the water and all the sharks are circling and getting even more rabid and, and, and um, more uh, radicalized and kind of becoming even more angry and upset uh, in, in a negative direction and trying to push further in what you're, you're fighting against. Do you have any evidence of which of those two it's, it's, it's falling on? I mean, do you care? Uh, what do you think? I think we have like some listeners who get a little bit over exercise sometimes, but I think the median listener who reaches out to us, it's like sort of the way I felt when thing. I don't want to um, praise the fifth column too much, but like when stuff was going crazy that summer, like they would say stuff that I was like, why the fuck isn't anyone else saying that? It's such an obvious thing to say. I know a lot of people are thinking it and you feel a sense of palpable relief that someone is saying this thing, which is not crazy and not radical. You know, a lot of people are believing it. So I think we hear a lot from people who are just grateful and this, I don't want this sounds like more highfalutin than anything we do, but I think it makes me feel a little bit less alone, which is a nice thing to do. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you. Oh, anything else? Or? I, I was going to, but... Um, Go for it. I'm sorry. Um, if I understand your question correctly, um, people like seeing other people deal with this without crumbling, right? They like seeing that. It gives them hope. And, you know, I, that's what I'm trying to do, just uh, be as out there as possible, you know, and show people that, you know, you, you, you're not going to crumble if they come after you, right? And nor should you care about what they think. I mean, I, I honestly don't care about what my peers think anymore. You know, I, I, I will quote the great Rick Sanchez, <laughs> who said, I don't care about your booze because I've seen what makes you cheer. <laughs> Such a good question. And that's exactly how I feel. You know, so there's that. I think that's a great note to add on. Um, <laughs> thank you guys so much for coming. This was really fun. Like we said, the first time we've ever done it. Um, what do you say? Juicy, rap for us. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we want to do this more. You know, obviously, if we... Uh, We'd like to come to your school if you'd like to have us. We'd like to do more of these live events, so hit us up. Really? Yeah. You got it. Yes. <laughs> uh, $5 million an hour, by the way. He's right. Uh, anything else you want to add, Katie? No. Uh, again, you guys can check us out at our Substack. You are mandated to have a Substack if you attend this conference, and ours is at blockerreported.org. Thank you guys so much, and especially thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing it.